This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The pricing of drugs is characterized by a tension between providing incentives to drug companies to invest in the development of innovative therapies, and ensuring affordability so patients have access to needed medicines. The Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, an independent nonprofit research institute that analyzes the evidence on the effectiveness and value of drugs and other medical services, recently issued final modifications to its framework for assessing the value of treatments for serious ultra-rare diseases. The framework applies to therapies that are eligible to treat no more than 10,000 U.S. patients, including certain treatments for inherited eye disease, hemophilia A, and cystic fibrosis. We spoke to Stephen Pearson, president of ICER, about the framework, why modifications were needed for drugs to treat ultra-rare diseases, and what the implications are for a pipeline of therapies with the potential not just to treat, but to cure progressive and deadly rare diseases. Steve, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. We're going to talk about the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, the relationship between drug prices and the value of a drug, and your recently announced modified framework for ultra-rare diseases. Perhaps that we can begin with ICER itself. What is it? What's its mandate? And, and how is it funded? Sure. So ICER stands for the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, ICER. And it's an independent uh, nonprofit health technology assessment research group. I actually started it as a, as a academic research group at Harvard Medical School when I was a full-time faculty there. And it grew over time, and we decided to move it out to be an independent nonprofit about three and a half years ago. We, since the beginning, have worked with different stakeholders, with manufacturers, with patient groups, with the payers, with clinical societies, and others, to try to figure out how to create evidence reports that can really foster a better dialogue about value in our healthcare system. So all of our reports are in the public domain. We don't sell anything. And we're funded by nonprofit foundations like the Laura and John Arnold Foundation, the California Healthcare Foundation, Blue Shield of California Foundation, those kinds of folks, so that we can keep our material in the public domain and hopefully make it as independent and objective and helpful to people as possible. I, I think drug pricing remains a bit of a mystery to, to most people. How are prices for drugs generally set in the United States today? Well, it, it is complicated because our healthcare system is so kind of fragmented in a lot of ways. But the general structure in the United States is for the manufacturer to get to name their price. 
Now, obviously, they need to think about the competitive landscape and a lot of other factors, but there is no national process for negotiating drug prices, no price setting or anything like that in the U.S. So when they name their price, they might be required to give certain discounts to groups like Medicaid um, and hospitals that serve the uh, vulnerable populations. But in general, the, the drug maker gets to name their price, and then they can negotiate with a variety of different insurers. Um, as I mentioned, they might have to give a certain discount to Medicaid, but Medicaid can try to negotiate deeper discounts. And certainly the private insurers try to negotiate where they can. Um, and to do that, sometimes they will decide whether they can favor one drug over another if they're similar in their mechanism of action and their effectiveness. Um, and they try to kind of play off the different drug makers to the extent possible. But largely, I think, because we don't have a national program for negotiating drug prices, um, the drug prices are higher in this country. There are other reasons for that as well. But the basic story is drug makers get to think about the competitive landscape and name their price. And how unique is that in, in the world of... It is completely unique. Um, all the other developed countries um, have some uh, program. It's sometimes an agency or an institute inside the government. Um, but they basically try to take a look at the effectiveness of the drugs, look at the cost effectiveness as well long term, and negotiate in one way or another with the companies. Uh, we just have never done that in the U.S. There's been much talk about tying drug prices to the value they provide. How should value be determined? Value is one of those tricky words uh, because it definitely is in the eye of the beholder, and that's part of the challenge here. Um, if we could, we would obviously want to say, well, for some patients, the drug might provide a great benefit, and we would want to pay more for it there. And for other patients, if it's used uh, for some patients for whom it might have a very low chance of working or, and not bring much benefit, even if it does, we would want to pay very little. But we end up having a system where we have one price, um, even though they're different you know, negotiated discounts. So value can mean different things. Um, value, obviously, from the patient's perspective means, will the drug give me some, you know, a good chance at improvement? There's a kind of a clinical value to them. And that's often how doctors and nurses and others think of value as well. How much will it help the patient? If you bring it up to the higher level in the health system and insurance systems, et cetera, then value usually means value for money. How much bang for the buck are we getting? How much better do these drugs work? than others. So that's a dominant way to think about value, but actually there's a, a third way that some people fact, factor in, which is um, how much did it cost to make the drug, to bring it to market? Um, were there a lot of failures along the way that we should, you know, kind of consider as well and wrap that up and, you know, feel that a good value means something where the cost to produce and develop the drug is mirrored in some way in the price that we pay. That's actually very applicable to generic drugs once drugs have reached that stage. But for new emerging drugs, most health economists and systems around the world have thought that to incentivize innovation, we really want to send the signal that we want to pay handsomely for drugs that really add significant improvements to patients' lives. So it's trying to figure out how to align the prices with the added benefits to patients that is the dominant approach and the one that we certainly try in our analyses. You just issued a, a modified framework for assessing the value of ultra-rare diseases. What was the thinking in needing a somewhat different approach to therapies than large market therapies? 
Well, all of the all of the dilemmas, ethical and others, that come along with how we think about value and pricing for for any drug or any treatment, any part of our healthcare system, just is magnified when you get into the ultra rare kind of zone, and it's magnified for multiple reasons. One is that uh, these drugs often, not always, but they often treat um, very sick individuals, um, often children who may have really life, you know, ending uh, conditions um, without treatment. And that, it, it just kind of adds an extra pressure, if you will, an extra desire by society to foster innovation for those kinds of drugs and to make them as available as possible. The other factors that are challenging are, are that just to get the kinds of evidence that we usually expect to judge the value of drugs is harder um, when there are very few patients. You often can't do randomized controlled trials. You can sometimes, but not always. And you often end up with more uncertainty about the long-term safety and effectiveness than you do with a, a kind of a standard uh, you know, drug. So we have difficulties kind of even looking at the evidence and kind of assessing it. Um, and then complicating that further is the fact that if you get really down to smaller patient numbers, um, and there's a lot of debate around where this threshold should be, but when you get pretty low, um, you have to factor in that the companies really do need to make a fair profit in order to keep the pipeline going and to keep incentives flowing for innovation in these kinds of conditions. And if there are very few patients, you would have to charge a high price that might not meet any kind of standard cost-effectiveness ratio or proportion, the kinds of you know math that we do to figure out what a fair price would be according to how much it benefits patients. So for all of those reasons and others even, um, it just means that it's, it's harder to pin down the value sometimes of, of, of drugs in the ultra-rare space, and we have special reasons to want to incentivize those drugs, but we still have to set some kind of standards because, again, when we're in a system in which the drug companies can name their price, um, we could all maybe admit that a, a drug, even a life-saving one, might not be reasonably priced at $10 million or $20 million, but $1 million or 100000 How do we kind of make those judgments and help to factor that into the system? Because, ultimately, we don't do a better job of this. Uh, one broadly held concern is that we'll price ourselves out of the ability to make sure that patients can get good access to these drugs. You went through a, a nine-month process and sought input from payers, and rare disease patients, and drug makers. Was there any surprises in what you learned? Did anything unexpected come from the process? I think what was really um, helpful, not surprising, maybe it was to them, but I think once you, once you invite people into talking about these issues, um, they may have come with some pre or, you know, pre-expectations of that there's a right way to do this, that there's, you know, there should be one way to do it or not to do it. But if you, once people sit down and start sharing perspectives and wrestling with the, the real options, I, I think they do recognize that there's no perfect answer, that we're always going to be struggling with this. And here's where, again, sometimes people think that the Europeans or other countries have drug prices or issues solved. They don't. And especially in ultra-rare, everybody wrestles with this because of all the ethical and other dilemmas. So um, I think it was not a surprise, but a happy outcome that people um, really contributed very thoughtful ideas, wrestling with the fact that there's nothing perfect. Um, and um, probably one of the 
you know, people often come into these feeling that they want to try to quantify everything that matters about a drug because there's so much in value that can be hard to quantify. The impact on the family, the impact on the community, um, on the ability of, you know, caregivers to go back to work. All of these things are important. And some of them are really tough to, to capture in evidence and to, to quantify. So sometimes people come in really hopeful that that can happen, but they realize, I think, um, in the end that it's hard to capture all of these factors. And that's why we have to kind of broaden our expectations, broaden our ranges for what seems reasonable to a certain extent, and just talk it through because a lot of these issues are important but are very, very hard to actually quantify. There's always this challenge between the incentive for drug developers to take risk and, and invest in innovation and the need to provide access to new therapies. How do the small markets for ultra-rare diseases amplify those challenges? Well, if you go back and read the language from the original Orphan Drug Act from 1983, it's interesting. They were they were literally trying to create a market that was dead on arrival at that point. There just did not seem to be the ability to get drugs for ultra-rare conditions, what were called orphan then. And they created a fairly, well, some people would call it a high bar, a high level of patients to qualify for orphan. It was around 200,000 um, people in the United States. Um, and they really felt that they needed to create special incentives, special tax incentives and other kind of um, benefits to get through the FDA quicker, et cetera, um, in order to incentivize any innovation in that space and to allow for a reasonable return on the investment. We're at the point now, though, um, where the launch prices for even kind of common diseases has, has obviously been going up through the years. And so let's say that you have a condition and it only has 10,000 patients that a company could make a drug and could hope to have 10,000 patients use it. Well, $100,000 is a pretty low launch price for a lot of specialty drugs these days. But if you only have 10,000 patients and you charged $100,000 per year for a treatment, that's a billion dollars right there every year. So the old concern that there wasn't enough profit, if you will, or enough return on investment is a little bit less acute, I think, than it used to be, just given the way that drug prices have kind of migrated higher and higher through the years. That's not to say that they're, it's still not more risky in many ways for uh, companies to invest in this space, and they do need higher profits to keep that investment flowing. But um, now that we're up into launch prices well north of 100000 per year, and many of these conditions still have more than 10,000 patients, I think at the same time, we do have a better, you know, business model for companies and it's not quite as difficult for them to, to maintain the innovation and the investment in these areas. We're now in an era where we're not talking about treatments, but cures. In the case of our therapies, there are cures for, these would be cures for chronic, progressive and fatal diseases. How, how does that alter the discussion of value? We are just at the dawn of this age, I would say, and it's incredibly exciting. I mean, I just have to say, you know, I'm not practicing anymore, but as a, as a physician and um, certainly as a, as a citizen, it's just amazing the drugs that I hear about in the pipeline and the potential that they will have, as you said, to really cure things that have been chronic, disabling, um, life-limiting, 
and very expensive, many of them. So imagine a cure for something like sickle cell anemia or hemophilia. What's happening, though, I'm afraid, is that we are entering this zone and we need to very quickly get our game up because the prices for these cures um, are going to be very high. And if you think about the value, again, let's say a cure really does cure a, a condition that would have been you know, very severe for 40, 50, or more years, and it was very expensive. If you wrap up all of that expense over 40 or 50 years and bring it back and say, we're going to cure that condition, you could imagine that it would be reasonable to charge millions and millions of dollars for a single treatment. The healthcare system, though, may not be teed up to be able to afford that very easily. And the, there's just going to be a kind of a sticker shock to start with, but you know, insurance companies don't always have patients for 40 or 50 years, and they don't get all of those benefits, but they might be asked to pay that upfront price all at once. So what's the, how does that play out, and where do they, how do they afford it in the short term, even if it's a great long-term value? So we're actually, part of what we do is to, to bring leaders of pharmaceutical and biotech companies together with payers to try to look over the horizon and to work together to think about some of the evidence policies and payment approaches that we'll need to make this work, whether it's some kind of installment payment program for a cure or other approaches. Um, we really are going to have to get some new tools in the toolbox. In the short term, there may not be so many that they'll overwhelm, but pretty soon, I hope, we will have um, cures that will require us to think very hard about value and to develop new ways to pay for these treatments. Jeff Marazzo, CEO of Spark Therapeutics, which is widely expected to have its gene therapy for a specific form of inherited retinal disease, recently walked through how his company is thinking about the value of the therapy as they decide on how to price it. In, in the various models he alluded to, there was a reliance on the value to the patient as opposed to the value to the payer. This included things like lost wages from unemployment and caregiver wages. In a single-payer system, this might be an easier case to make, but is there a consideration of this in your modified framework? Do you look at these other issues such as the ability to work or other cases yeah. that... Yeah, and this, this, is a, this is a really important question. And it's, again, it's not unique here to ultra-rare conditions. Imagine a, a cure for Alzheimer's disease. The issues there are obviously very broad beyond the individual patient in terms of the impact on families um, and society. So um, when you're treating kids who might, you know, who might gain tremendous ability to get back to, to go to work or to expand their ability to work, um, it's certainly fair to, to consider that. It's, it's still a bit of an ethical dilemma, though, in some ways, because um, maybe there are rare conditions for people who will still be disabled afterwards or who, who are elderly and don't work? Um, do we give a lot of priority to treatments that treat young working age people a lot more than we would give to an older population? Um, a lot of countries around the world who have, in some sense, been some years ahead of us in thinking through some of these ethical issues have generally tended not to give a lot of weight to the work aspect because they are concerned that it would discriminate, if you will, against um, patients with conditions who don't work, either because of their age or, or underlying disability. Does that mean that we want to ignore the fact that um, a drug might help people, um, you know, do more work and contribute to society in different ways? Absolutely not. 
but it means we have to kind of hold it at, at some arm's length and think about it carefully. And we're going to, our reports are going to produce, in a sense, two value uh, analyses, one that will factor that in and one that will leave it out so that people can see the difference. And again, our hope is that that can foster the kind of discussion um, that we need to have because there's no single right answer. You talk about the evolution of new payment models. We've got a very complicated healthcare system, as you mentioned earlier. There's a strange mix of public and private payers, and there's a relatively high turnover of patients from one payer to the next. I'm wondering how that complicates the challenge of coming up with new payment models, particularly as you think about these curative therapies and, and whether there's some formula for paying over time as opposed to paying right at the, the point of administration. Is that practical in our system? Well, it, it, it's, it's got to be made practical, I guess is my, my, my feeling. And a lot of the insurers that I, I talk to, um, people might be surprised. I mean, yes, it's true that the average time, I guess, that they have someone with their insurance company might be 2.5 years or something like that. Um, but I think they would be surprised how little that actually factors into their thinking. Um, they really don't go around figuring out how many preventive services that end up helping patients 20, 30 years downstream they can not do just because they won't be the one kind of reaping the benefit. Um, they know they're part of a system where they'll get a patient from some other insurer, and if everybody's doing the right thing, everybody wins. What they want is a level playing field. They, they don't want systems in which, you know, patients are preferentially funneled to some insurers who have better benefits for some of these treatments and therefore would, would bear, in a sense, unfair costs, whereas other insurers get to skate by. So I do think we might have to have some approach, though, to creating a system in which, let's say there is an installment payment program set up for a cure, and it's paid out over, I don't know, five or ten years. And you would obviously watch to make sure that the cure um, is actually proving to be a cure. Um, but let's say the patient then changes insurer. We need some way for that to basically move with the patient. So kind of like pre-existing conditions, um, you know, you, you basically, if you're getting treated for arthritis and you go from one insurer to the other, uh, you know, you, you shouldn't get penalized um, for having arthritis and you can keep getting your treatments. Um, we need something like that for this, for an installment payment approach, where if one insurer is starting to pay it, over time, and the patient, for whatever reason, goes to another insurer. The other insurer has to pick up, you know, the, the back end of the payment. Um, we, unfortunately, we are in the early days of setting up those kinds of systems, um, but people are very aware that they are needed um, and needed relatively soon, because otherwise, the companies really don't have much of an option except to charge a very high single price up front um, and kind of see what happens. Stephen Pearson, President of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. Stephen, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. 
The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.